This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. On this week's episode, we've got the somewhat unexpected comeback of the Hollywood Foreign Press and next week's Golden Globe nominations announcement. Uh, We've got more discussion of West Side Story and Nightmare Alley, which we discussed a bit last week. We've got Don't Look Up and Being the Ricardos, which have the review embargoes lifted now. And we talk about the New York Film Critics Circle and the National Board of Review Awards, both of which were announced last week and kind of kicked off a new round of award speculation. And then finally, at the end of the episode, you'll hear two interviews. First, we have David Canfield talking to Anjanou Ellis about her role in King Richard. And then Rebecca Ford talks to Belfast director Kenneth Branagh. So I think surprising all of us, we are talking about the Golden Globe nominations and the press conference announcement that's going to happen next week as we record this. Um, The state of the HFPA and the Golden Globes and whether or not the Globes exist anymore had been kind of an open question until they basically came out and said, hey, we're doing it anyway. Uh, And immediately as we record this, they put out a statement on Twitter that was essentially like, we hear you. We want to be better. Um, The president of the HFPA uh, talked to our colleague Joy Press for a piece that she published this week, as well as some publicists who are still pretty skeptical of the group. Uh, There's a lot to talk about. And David, you'll be there next Monday for the press conference announcing the award. So we'll have more to talk about next week. But David, just kind of generally, what are you anticipating when these nominations come out despite all odds? I'm anticipating most people like me going out of sheer curiosity as to the boldness of continuing to hold your nominations conference at an ungodly early hour at the same location as if nothing has changed. (laughs) And I bet a lot of people do show up for the sheer spectacle of it. You know, my, my feelings about their nominations this year is that they're going to play it as safe as humanly possible, as safe as uh, HFPA possible, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because this is a year they really need to skate through to, to regain the, the prestige and televised spectacle of um, what they normally are next season. So I'm just hoping for, someone to say Dear Evan Hansen at the podium and everyone in the crowd to gasp and cheer. Um, that's that's all we can hope for, really, because otherwise, what are we doing here? <laughs> I mean, Rebecca, you were doing reporting on the Globes over the summer when two of the members kind of quit in frustration about how these reforms were playing out. And now they're saying, you know, we've reformed, we've done it, we're, we're ready to return. Are you surprised by how quickly they're just going for it? Yeah, you know, I am surprised. I feel like a lot of the people I talked to who had a lot of criticism about this group are also surprised because it just feels like maybe they should have taken a, a little more time. Like maybe they should have taken a year off. And and 
at, you know, at the same time, a lot of people understand why, because you, you disappear for a year. It's really, really hard to come back. Uh, you know, the memory of everyone who works, works in Hollywood is so short. Um, but it does feel like I think it would have been a better move maybe to just sit it out this year. So, you know, and I, I think in, in this release, it actually mentioned that three of the studios have not provided screenings or shared their content with voters. So there are some studios that are sticking by their sort of policy to to not cooperate this year. But we don't know which ones those are, right? We don't yet. Mm. <laughs> we're, we're digging. And I mean, it's even a question of how much access they have, because in some cases, uh, I saw an Entertainment Weekly report yesterday that some studios have, you know, intentionally not sent links out these members mm-hmm. and like actively do not want them to see their movies and so it'll also be interesting to see is there a movie that you could safely assume they would go for that doesn't pop up a lot and you know there, there are going to be a lot of rumors flying around that stuff too i think and you know, i think the question for us and for the media as a whole is how much you cover them like we are obviously uh you know we love awards and we love covering who's been nominated for something and i think people probably deserve to feel happy if they get nominated for something but who's going to actually put out a statement thanking them for the nomination who's going to like cover the list of nominees just straight face like it's it's a kind of a test for all of us and like how much are we going to let them kind of come back and and get away with saying that it's it's really ready to to make its comeback and how much do we want to give the reported 21 new members a chance? You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. mm-hmm. maybe this is a whole different organization now. I just want to preemptively congratulate Dear Evan Hansen on its record breaking <laughs> 30 nominations. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of musicals this year. You know, there's I think we've said this maybe amongst ourselves, maybe on the air, like this would be a really good year for the legitimate Golden Globes to exist because comedy musical could be a fun category more so than it is in other years. So. You know, maybe I'll feel a little bit thrilled when, like, In the Heights gets some recognition that we didn't feel like it was going to get otherwise, um, despite all the the kind of Sturm and Drang surrounding it. I was gaming it out with a friend last night about, like, okay, so best actor, musical, or comedy, how many other people have to get nominated? Not to keep beating this dead horse for Ben Platt not to get nominated. (laughs) Actually, the math is there, like, because, like, DiCaprio for Don't Look Up, like, that is a a comedy, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I I, it's it. Devoid of all context, it is kind of an interesting year to think about that because, like you said, Katie, there have been so many musicals, much more so than a normal year. Yeah. Um, Well, maybe that's a good way to lead into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is what we talked about last week, honestly. Richard, you and I talked about West Side Story. David and Rebecca, you talked about Nightmare Alley. It was a—we were all over the place traveling, seeing these movies. Now we have all seen all of them and can kind of regroup and maybe— get a little bit more distance from this big rush of hype that happened for both of them. And we've seen some awards for both of them come since then. Um, I mean, just a quick up and down vote. Our, I think we were all highest on West Side Story as an Oscar contender. Do we feel as enthusiastic as we did a week ago about its odds here? Yes. Yes. I, do. I feel very <laughs> enthusiastic about it, uh, both in terms of its chances and just personal feelings about the film, which I really mm-hmm. unexpectedly loved. Yeah, I think it's a really strong contender. Yeah, I think they really they really pulled it off. You know, everyone was really doubting um, how you update this film. And I think they they're having more screenings this week with the talent on stage. And, you know, it's being met with a lot of standing ovations. And I, I think they've really done it. So, yeah, I'm very high on it as well. 
Um, Richard, you are a uh, voter in the New York Film Critics Circle, and you are not at liberty to discuss the voting process, but you guys did give West Side Story an award for cinematography, which surprised me a little bit because there's a lot of really beautifully shot movies. Um, but, you know, speaking generally, like that does seem to indicate a level of support for this movie among critics, not just, you know, old school Academy voters who love a, love a classic musical. Oh, yeah. And without getting into specifics, like West Side Story had a lot of support in other categories as well. You know, nothing that got it to a win, but it was well represented uh, in the many, 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 many rounds of voting over the course of the five hours that we were in that room at Lincoln Center, which felt fitting, you know, given mm-hmm. West Side Stories. Were the wrecking uh, balls uh, or the, um, the big uh, construction equipment where Riff lives just right outside your window? Yeah. And then I don't know if people know this who are listening, but after we vote every year, we do a Jerome Robbins dance in the, in the plaza <laughs> yeah, just yeah. to honor uh, history. But, you know, speaking of another group of critics, journalists, I actually don't really know who is in the National Board of Review. But um, <laughs> but Rachel Ziegler won Best Actress at that, um, you know, annual thing. And, and that for me, none of this syncs up directly with the Academy. Yes. But like. That's a strong show of support for that film. My, in my experience, talking to my colleagues in the critic circle and those who are not, but are in other voting bodies, like that movie, like you said, Rebecca, like it kind of surprised people. It was like, wow, they actually did pull it off. And I think that among its many other merits, that kind of like, hey, they did it energy really um, will help propel it to, I think, a lot of success. And I think the big thing is that I would hopefully i mean i i would imagine that that's going to be like a big box office like over the holidays kind of movie so it'll have like popular support as well which yes the the public is not voting for these things but um when they like something it can help i think um change the winds for a movie's chances at the oscars yeah you imagine the relief of having a box office movie to support at the oscars it it feels it feels like it's been a hundred years since that happened it hasn't been that long but i think we were all talking about dune and being like well hollywood's back and people went to see it so they want to embrace it but west side story seems like a much more natural fit for that kind of like the people love it and the oscars love it and we'll all we'll throw all of our weight behind it yeah yeah and i'm curious to see what this this filmmaker steven spielberg i think his name is and <laughs> what he does after this you know this yeah. is a huge calling card movie for him you know yeah a lot of promise um, some of our, uh, several of our listeners, I think maybe after I uh, raved about him last week, uh, were interested in, I think I have reason to believe it's Mike Feist, not Face. We're going to have to find that out. But um, he plays Riff in the movie. Uh, I thought he was my favorite performance in it. Uh, people wanted to know what we thought his odds for a nomination were. I'm pretty high on it, especially because supporting actor has been a little bit of a an odd duck this season. Um, anybody else want to join me in saying he'll, he will get nominated? I don't know, Katie. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're right, though, that I can only think of two actors who I could comfortably say are getting nominated there, which are Cody Smith-McPhee and, and Kieran Hines for Belfast. Beyond that, Who both I won awards this past week. Correct. Uh, but yeah. I would have you know, said that before. Other than that, it, it is hard to say how this category is taking shape. And I, I would like to think that um, he's so good in the movie. And, and, and if the movie just completely, you know, knocks voters off and it gets, you know, over 10 nominations, I would like to think he could be a part of that. But, you know, the role isn't Anita, um, mm-hmm. which is a more immediate like, yes, this 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 is a nomination worthy for an actor who has not been nominated before. And you just wonder if name recognition of others or just general seniority of others might might bump them out because it is always harder for younger actors i think to to find their lane here all right fine 
Except your, your dose of but reality. But I'm rooting for it. I'm rooting for it. But, well, but so, speaking so, of younger actors, do we think that Ziegler is going to, like, has made her way to, like, sort of a sure thing for best actress? Oh, yeah, I, I think meant so. more younger yeah. male actors. No, no, I know. I'm just I'm just kind of pivoting, because like, I, 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 again, the, the NBR win for her is big, and, and I just, I wonder if Ziegler is yeah. for sure in, does that mean that someone else gets bumped out, maybe even Gaga? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think she's she's in. I mean, she feels like that sort of story that, you know, the Oscar seasons have where it's it's this, you know, feature debut, amazing performance. And then she lands the nomination. I, the I, Lady Gaga model, honestly, the, the from Lady. A Star is Born. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And can also sing. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, so but I don't I don't know who that knocks out. I mean, that category, I feel like if you've got Stuart Gaga, Probably right, Coleman, Kidman. Mm-hmm. I, I'm the being the Ricardo's pessimist. You can I call know. on me if you'd like. Yes, I, I mean, <laughs> it, it, I, well, I wasn't. I'm not so sure about Kidman either, but I feel like uh, those seem like the most. I mean, that's five. So I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> and like, it feels like it's nearly locked in that group. Oh, and then you also got you know, um, speaking of people making their film debut who can sing, like Alana Himes floating around mm. over there. Mm-hmm. Penelope Cruz is floating around. I, it feels like there's like eight actors possibilities, and you could almost take any combination of them and have a, a reasonable prediction. I do think that the person whose chances Ziegler affects most directly is probably Alana Heim mm-hmm. in terms of two actresses making their debuts. It, it just feels really unlikely to me that both would make it in. And, and Ziegler feels far more likely, not to say she gave, you know, a dramatically better performance, but it's just so much more neatly up an Oscar voters lane for, for what they would go for here for a, for a debut. Um, well, on the actress front, though, you guys were a little pessimistic about Mike Feist, but how about Ariana DeBose and or Rita Marino and or both? What what do you guys think about the differences between the two? It feels like a lot of people that I've seen, a lot of our peers are predicting Rita Moreno, even though they would concede that DeBose gives the richer performance, which is just by nature of the role. But yeah. it does feel odd to lean in the direction of she's a legend, even if the role isn't as good and she doesn't have as much to do, she would be more positioned to win. I do think both can get nominated, though. It does feel like a really cynical way to look at it, being like, well, Ariana DeBose is the big standout, but I mean, and like, with all due respect to Rita Moreno, you know, like she won an Oscar for that role. Like she has a a reason to be legendary there. I would be thrilled to see them both get in. But you do. I wonder if like the campaign, then it's their job to kind of circle the wagons a little bit and figure out how they want to push everybody and what makes the most sense. And everyone's kind of waiting for for that to happen. I think people are really geeking out about the fact that Rita would, Mm -hmm. you know, make history being nominated in the film she was in before and 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 all of that so i feel like i mean not everyone is obsessed with uh you know interesting data of awards like we are but (laughs) i do i do think enough people sort of realize how historic that would be and that obviously helps her with the nomination but i think it would just be such a shame if if they both didn't get in i honestly i mean i don't even know if we've had two latinx actresses in this category i'm gonna assume not i'm just gonna assume yeah, we seems, haven't seems, ever seems likely so like and they it, they're both so deserving I, th- I i hope they both make it in i mean that's the thing is that they are both really deserving you know and you look at ariana debose who like 
I don't think that many people are aware of her. I, I, I mean, I remember her most vividly from like doing the hosting at the pre Oscars thing. She you was know, great this, though. And it felt like the Academy being like, well, we'll just wait, Ariana, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to you. You know, like it yeah. felt like they were kind of putting a, a placeholder there. And then you watch West Side Story and she like, not only like does Anita well, she like really plays it and like has a character and, and mm-hmm. adds something new to it with the help of Tony Kushner's script. And, and, you know, I, I just think that like, she makes such a declarative sort of statement for herself and for the role in a way that Moreno did when she won the Oscar for it. And and then Moreno, you know, they gave her somewhere. <laughs> so she gets a big song <laughs> mm-hmm. and she's not just there puttering around in the background as like, hey, look, a living legend. She actually, again, plays a character and like has stuff to do and does it well and does it convincingly. And kind of it becomes the moral center of of this show. So I think they're kind of both undeniable in the way that, like, you know, two of the actors from um, The Favorite were, you know, who both got nominated. Like, Mm -hmm. I I think that I think there's room for them. And it's in a category that we have all had kind of question marks around this whole season thus far, because it's a a strange category this year. And there are a lot of great supporting um, actress performances that like like in mass or whatever that probably aren't haven't gained enough steam to get in there. So I think there's plenty of room for both of them. And it would be deserved. Well, maybe that's my transition to Nightmare Alley, because uh, when that premiered uh, in New York on Wednesday, I think the the name that most people talked about immediately from the cast was Kate Blanchett, who kind of emerges in the second half in this very classic femme fatale figure. She dresses great. She has an amazing office. She leans on all manner of furniture. Um, and I'm just kind of poking around Gold Derby, and there's not that many people like actively predicting her in the five, although she still feels for me. And David, I think you wrote this in your analysis piece, like the likeliest acting nominee from this group. Um, should that just lead me to believe that maybe Nightmare Alley isn't an acting contender at all and we should be focusing on it elsewhere? David, what do you think? Um, I think I said this to Rebecca last week, but it feels equally weird to say that a movie with this cast will not get any nominations and that given the movie we've seen that it will get any acting nominations, um, which is just through a combination of factors, like probably my favorite performances in the film are Richard Jenkins and David Strathairn, who just don't, you probably need one or two more scenes to really mm-hmm. be competitive there. Kate Blanchett has like the media scene and, and she gets that back half of the film, which is really <laughs> completely um, structured toward her big last scene. And it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's, there's a little bit of, um, coldness to that whole arc that may be difficult for voters to connect to um, and really to the whole film and I just don't know that Bradley Cooper given that he's not seemingly campaigning much and uh, that much of that performance is kind of hidden from view until the end um, when he really he does have a great last scene I don't see how he breaks into such a competitive best actor category so yeah it feels like a to me mostly a crafts play that could conceivably fit into the best picture 10 i I think it will um just because it is um such a beautiful looking movie and the score so great and um i think it'll play well enough but yeah i'm i don't know that it is going to get an acting nomination at this point it did make the nbr 10 um or yeah i guess it's 10 you know the day after it premiered basically which felt like a, a a strong vote in its longevity there that they um immediately put it on there i'll tell you this i saw the movie last week and walked out of it and was like, wait, did I love that? I can't, I don't really know. And then I thought about it that night and and I've thought about it since. 
And it's really that final scene not, with no spoilers attached. I mean, people have yeah. read the book, presumably, and so they kind of know where the movie's headed. But, like, I was not familiar with any of the source material. I hadn't seen the movie from, you know, with um, from the 40s. And, 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 and so it really came kind of crept up on me uh as a surprise and that final scene is so good Mm -hmm. and cooper has so much to do in it Mm -hmm. that i feel like a lot of voters could feel the same way i did which is like that final scene makes me forget other things i didn't like in this long movie's run and i feel like that could push him over the top because um it's just like it's it is to use a kind of trite uh, construction, Bradley Cooper, like we've never seen him before. At least I don't mm-hmm. can't remember a role where he did exactly what he does in that scene. Yeah, I mm. think I've been thinking about his performance like since I saw the movie, and and I'll I'll have this experience where I'll I'll think of a scene of this film, and then because the film like goes on such a journey, and the first half is is quite different than the second half, my brain has a hard time wrapping around the idea that this was all the same movie, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah. so I really respect that, you know, that that this movie was so big and that to me they pulled it off, especially with the ending. And and mm-hmm. for me, I feel like, you know, a lot of people are going to really, especially the crafts and all that, are, are going to really um, admire it. So I also think it gets in for picture. And, and I think Kate is the one we, we can't count out and, and mm-hmm. could possibly sort of get the acting. Now, I do think Bradley is phenomenal and, and would deserve that spot, um, as you were saying, Richard. But again, that group is, is so competitive. I just I just don't know if he can make it in. Yeah, Bradley yeah. Cooper's streak is just like this incredibly talented, famous, handsome, many nominated actor who can't win. It's just going to continue. He's going to like be reaching Amy Adams status before we know it. Um, but I think I agree with you guys that like this and Licorice Pizza, neither of them seem to be pushing him over the brink this year. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, well, we do have a lot of contenders that suddenly we can talk about now that um, you know some of us may have seen a long time ago. I actually haven't seen either, so I'll try to talk less. Um, but the review embargo for Don't Look Up is out this week, um, and it started screening a few weeks ago. It feels like it's been out there a long time. It was honestly funny to me that the review embargo wasn't up. Um, and Richard, I believe you're reviewing it for us. So um, how is it? How's my review? I haven't started yet, Katie, so don't. <laughs> Where is your copy, Richard? About this. I have to do it after this. Um, I don't love the movie. I, 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 I don't know. I, I post Vice, I was just like kind of done with Adam McCain. <laughs> I, I, but I was saying this to a friend um, who had also seen the movie that, like, in its mild defense, Vice, and I, I kind of like The Big Short. Both of those movies were about like anatomy of a thing that happened you know be it the cheney 
you know, rain or um, the financial collapse. Um, and now in his third film in his new era, McKay is has turned to lecturing about things that are going to happen. And that is a decidedly, for me anyway, um, an unwelcome tone. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I get the point he's trying to make. But, you know, it's a, it's an allegory for climate change and, and whatnot and, and other, you know, um, uh, preventable catastrophes that we seem to hell bent on not doing anything to prevent. Uh, I understand that. But I think that the tone of the movie uh, really doesn't sell that that argument, at least as he's making it. And I think the last third of the movie ish, maybe just last 20 minutes or so of it. And it's a long movie. They work because he starts taking it seriously. But otherwise, I think it's just kind of a mess. That said, everyone in my audience freaked out. Everything I've read about other screenings, people have freaked out. I think that movie is going to get a ton of nominations, acting, director, picture, screenplay, score. Uh, it's it's Bertel, I think. Um, like, I just think, I don't know. I, it, the, the amount to which I kind of didn't respond to it felt like the amount to which I didn't respond to, like, three billboards, you know? And, and so I have to kind <laughs> of listen that to that out. weird metric, you know? So, David and Rebecca, where are you guys landing on it? You, you first saw it a, a while ago. So has it followed the trajectory you expected when you first saw it? I think we all feel pretty much the same way about the movie itself. And, and to Richard's point, Vice was not a movie that worked for me. It was not particularly well-reviewed, and it was a huge Oscars player. <laughs> it got a lot of nominations. And I don't think that this movie is is too much of a departure from what the last three movies in Adam McKay's filmography have shown. You know, They're not different from what he's done to me, um, except for exactly what Richard said. It, it, it's more forward-looking. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a big player. It's not my favorite of the season. There are some performances in it that really worked for me and some that didn't. I definitely thought it was much more effective uh, in its dramatic moments than its comedic moments. But a lot of people were laughing in my screening. So what do I know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel about the same about it. Uh, I think this is just one of those films where um, it'll probably get a lot of nominations. And I know a couple other people are already sort of seeing it as a lock on, in, you know, the top six best picture prediction list. So, hmm. uh, to, you know, to me, I wasn't feeling that way. But then you look at something like Vice and, and it did so well in nominations. And and I could see that happening and again. Like Richard was saying, the score is brutal and very, very, very good. And obviously the editing on McKay's films is always phenomenal. And, and that, that this has all of that. I do think it's a great excuse for Leo to finally do a campaign and only have to talk about climate change. So he doesn't have to talk <laughs> he about did it. <laughs> he did it. This is what he's always dreamed of. And, you know, I, I really obviously respect what the message they're trying to get out there. But I, I it is one of those films that the people who are going to see it are probably already believers in this message and, and trying their best when it comes to climate change. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting one for sure. But I think we're all kind of on the same page with it. The one thing I will say with a lot of these late breakers, because they are not going to be as well reviewed, there is a specific design 
to give them these kinds of big splashy screenings where social reactions are allowed in awards analysis and they get a, a real bump out of that before reviews drop. Uh, and and the, those screenings are always enthusiastic. I remember last year, I mean, there weren't screenings, but uh, when Malcolm and Marie started screening for Netflix mm. and Zendaya had become for some known pundits of best picture, a uh, best actress front runner, mm-hmm. um, which always struck me as a little crazy, but this does always happen. Uh, I think being the Ricardos, which we can pivot to is a little bit more in that category, but I think don't look up to could prove to maybe be a little bit underwhelming as an Oscar player only because it's, I think more of an overt comedy for most of its runtime uh, than McKay's other two Oscar contending films. Um, so it's just something to watch out for. I'm always a little bit skeptical of those early reactions and, and the way that, you know, you pack the actors into the room who cheer for every, every big speech. And, <laughs> and that doesn't always translate to a, to a nomination. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm watching that, but I do think in this movie's case, McKay has the track record to, to indicate it will do well. Well, let's talk about being the Ricardos, because that one has given me just an intense whiplash from people like seeing and not being that into it to guild screenings, like screaming, clapping at every line. You know, the the reports have varied wildly. And I do, I do think there's a pretty steady report that at these big, broad guild screenings, people are really into it. The reviews are out now and are a little bit less enthusiastic. I know a lot of people who are predicting Nicole Kidman to win best actress richard i think you're one of them um I, as i <laughs> yeah. said i haven't seen this yet so i have i cannot make a judgment here but i honestly can't tell if it's going to get 10 oscar nominations or zero <laughs> uh, richard defend yourself i mean i've been trolling you guys a little bit by <laughs> taking <laughs> rebecca and specifically texting them late at night saying nicole kidman's gonna win i still think she's gonna win or she has a really good shot because i think that the parallels between ricardo's and don't look up yes they're coming out around the same time they're getting those effusive deliberately programmed screenings but they're both they both appeal to a certain smugness within the academy <laughs> that the academy really responds to and has historically in in in, in the new century um responded to and i think that in terms of the acting and and in ricardo's in specific is that nicole kidman transcends that smugness by like giving it her all i mean it's an earnest performance in a movie that i feel is actually not that earnest and um Mm -hmm. and you know whatever you think about sorkin dialogue you know i know people loathe it i guiltily am kind of a sucker for it even if i don't agree with what the dialogue is saying all the time it's fun to listen to and nicole kidman is so good at delivering it and that goes a long way just as dicaprio's big network-esque speech in don't look up is going to go a long way i don't know i i think kidman is really a really really strong contender and my sort of prediction about her winning is more based on the fact that I don't know who in the existing field beats what she does in it. She's not, I don't not, it's not my favorite performance of the year by any means, but like, I think she has enough of the component parts needed to, to tip her into a win. Yeah. I mean, the film has, I think it may have said this already, but you know, it's about the industry and there's things like table reads and, you know, stuff that voters love to love to watch. And it's, two iconic actors at the center. I mean, it's got all those uh, ingredients for, you know, a lot of love from the Academy. Um, You know, Dave and I saw it really early. Uh, Some of the effects weren't even finished. I'm planning on re-seeing it now that it's done. Um, But but to me, it just, it didn't stand up to 
so many of the films um, that we've seen, it's such a wonderful year for film, in my opinion. And and I just I just didn't think this was it. But I don't disagree with Richard saying Nicole could make it in or, or possibly win. I would appreciate the um, late night emotional abuse of getting texts about it too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, no. Uh, you know, uh, there's nothing I like more than thinking about, you know, Nicole Kidman's age and portrayal of Lucy in this movie at midnight. So thank you, Richard, for that. It wasn't that late. No, no. But I thought it about was late it for you, night. Richard. <laughs> yeah. I, I I feel like sometimes we don't give the Academy enough credit. I don't know. Not to say that they always make the right choice by any means or or the choice that lines up with, with what critics think, but this just feels like kind of a miss to me out of a Nicole Kidman nomination. Um, and I actually think the whole cast is really rises above the material in this case. I think J.K. Simmons and Nina Arianda are so good um, in support, and Javier Bardem, um, rightful controversy around his casting aside, um, I think it does, does well opposite Nicole as well. But the movie itself, I just, I don't see it going very far, and I think that hurts Nicole's overall chances in Best Actress, regardless of, uh, which I agree with, I think Kristen Stewart frontrunner narrative has kind of has died down a little bit uh, let's mm-hmm. say um as that movie has has screened to a more divisive general reaction and um and the movie itself doesn't feel prime for a lot of other nominations so there is that open question but i just don't know if this is the movie that would deliver nicole kidman her second oscar i think that the the bones of it are there she has the big moments she has the character arc um aaron sorkin can always write uh, a, a great speech for someone, uh, or at least a, a baby speech, let's say. But ultimately, Aaron Sorkin as a as a director has not been as much to the Academy's taste as people tend to expect. Molly's Game did not do well uh, with the Oscars. Uh, Trial of Chicago 7 seemed like it was created in a lab to <laughs> win a bunch of Oscars. Mm-hmm. It got six nominations and didn't win any of them. Um, including for, you know, its actors. And I, I think that this one is not going to do as well as Trial of Chicago 7, um, just given based on the reviews I've seen this morning and, and what I thought of the movie, uh, candidly. Uh, I think there's a lot to recommend about it, but I just, I don't, I don't see it going that far as a big, broad player. I do think Nicole probably fits into the final five, but beyond that, I'm not sure. Uh, ironically enough, I think we could look back just a couple years uh, at another Nicole Kidman movie, which is Bombshell. Uh, Nicole Kidman mm. did not get nominated That's the one I've been that, thinking of, yeah. But Charlize Theron and uh, Margot Robbie did, and it didn't get, well, it got a makeup and hairstyling, which Ricardo's could also get, yep. and then nothing else. So it was represented at the Oscars, even though, and then that was screened late. It was, you know, very, uh, the screening I went to in New, with a bunch of, you know, media, uh, TV media people in New York was, was well attended and well received and all that. And then it kind of, it couldn't make it across the finish line. So I think that in your view of things, David, like that is a totally plausible outcome for this movie where it was, you know, lauded initially and then it, it quickly dropped. But I still think that there's enough gas in, in the Kidman tank to, to take her to, to something. And, and to that point, if you want to talk about supporting candidate in the, that very shapeless supporting actor category, I feel like J.K. Simmons uh, ticks a lot of boxes uh, mm. in, with this performance. And he's a past winner. And I would not be surprised to see him figure into that five even pretty easily. I mean, honestly, it, I, I'm surprised he was not, was not more at the fore of the discussions around his Oscar prospects because he he seems like someone who the Academy would go for. 
he walks in, tells these dizzy dames to stop being so dizzy, and, uh, <laughs> and then walks off. <laughs> and he does, you know, he does it well, I guess. He does it well. Of all the acting categories today, we're talking about Best Actress. I feel like we've gotten into all of them, but Best Actor. Um, but we did get a question um, from a listener on subtext, uh, kind of seeing, uh, quote, unquote, extreme Will Smith fatigue set in. Um, a, do you guys see that? And B, do you think it's worth talking about potential spoilers in this race? Or does he still feel locked to you? I think you could have said the exact same thing about, like, Renee Zellweger around this time. And it mm. didn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 when an early frontrunner that strong... There's going to be that sentiment, but it doesn't mean that they're any less likely to win, Is would be my answer. It was in Barbara Walters' pre-Oscar um, interview special where Renee Zellweger said that she throws up after sex, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's, I, it's I an was, established playbook. I have seen a lot of sentiment online about, like, has Will Smith interviewed himself out of an Oscar? <laughs> like, that was his to win. I don't know. But I, I mean, I certainly feel that fatigue, but that's partly also because I saw the movie months ago now um, and I'm due for a King Richard rewatch. But um, I still think he's ahead, but he's not doing himself any favors. It's almost like we should record the date today and look every year if this is when the fatigue sets in. Because Ooh, I, think, yeah. I think almost every year it's it's in December where we're like, enough of this person if they've been promoting since the fall festivals. And then they're fine. They come back. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe he'll go away for the holidays and then everyone will be excited when he comes back. I don't know how to tell someone why we're right about this, but we were all wrong about Chadwick Boseman. You know, like it's it's mm. so funny when like a front runner is super clear and it does happen and it doesn't. And that's just because we're not psychics, really. But it does. I think it's because no one seems to be emerging as a as a spoiler with like the power that Anthony Hopkins did, even though we underestimated one him. It was like clear he was the other one that people were the most excited about. And that doesn't seem to be happening this year. But it is it's a tough line to draw. We're not psychics. We learned what we do. We all learn what we do at a carnival. <laughs> it's a spook Tony show. Collette teach, Tony Collette teaches us. We're just pretending. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like I the narrative changes every year, but that it also stays the same. And like, you know, Smith was my fearless forecast months ago. I'm still feeling that it's a strong thing. I feel a little bit m- more fearful about that that prediction than I had before. But yeah, I think you're right, Rebecca, that the, the, the fatigue cycle is pretty reliable. And all we need now is to for people to go away for the holidays, come back in the new year. The room has been cleared out a little bit. And then Smith can kind of more more perhaps delicately, you know, reignite his campaign um, because it's been a weird uh, foray thus far. But I think there is still ample time to course correct. Uh, I do think Benedict Cumberbatch is going to win a lot of critics awards. Um, and, and I think he may emerge as a clear ish challenger, especially cause power of the dog really played well on Netflix. It um, was viewed a, a lot more than their other contenders this season. And, um, that movie being popular enough, uh, could make it, could make a difference. But yeah, I, I do, I do agree that around this time you have your set front runners and then you just start questioning how sure they really are. I mean, like I felt pretty confident about Kristen Stewart. I don't feel confident about Kristen Stewart anymore. So mm-hmm. in some case, you know, it's hard to know where those feelings are just creating drama where there isn't any and where it really is like, actually we have no idea. But um, <laughs> in, in this one's case, like King Richard did disappoint a little bit at the box office. It has been, I think, overtaken in the, you know, quote unquote, crowd pleaser department um, by a late breaker like West Side Story. And so there are things working generally against that movie's campaign that weren't true a month ago. But 
I think the power of Will Smith's performance uh, remains strong. And I know people in the industry really, really love it and love that movie. And, and that's what ultimately counts. Well, this is a good way to loop back to the National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle, which we've mentioned a little bit throughout. Uh, Will Smith won at NBR and Benedict Cumberbatch won at New York Film Critics Circle. So maybe that's exactly that um, that binary you're talking about, David, of um, Cumberbatch mm. kind of coming on strong as a critical favorite. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that, David, you're right to point out that it's done well on Netflix, A Power of the Dog has. And I think that that is, I did not expect that movie to get traction beyond you know snooty critics or whatever yeah me neither um but it seems to be i mean judging by the amount of bronco henry jokes i've seen on gay twitter i mean this movie <laughs> has legs <laughs> yeah the, Bron- the bronco henry memes um i just didn't see it coming and i'm i, I will be sick of it soon but I- i'm enjoying it for right now the thing from the critic circle i want to talk about the most and i think the-, the most surprising and thrilling for people who've seen it is that i drive my car is the best film uh richard you talked about it as having been on your top 10 last week um but did you think that was going to happen that you're going are going to pull that off? I did not think that was going to happen. It wasn't even in my 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 master plan. <laughs> I actually I got a I got a, a few things that I had hoped to win did actually win, which was exciting. Um, Catherine Hunter for Macbeth. I was that was really that cool was so for great. supporting actress. Yeah. But yeah, drive my car. I'm not supposed to reveal too much about how the vote works, but we do not vote for best picture last. I'll say that. Um, so we kind of knew all day that that had won, which was really exciting and and. And then obviously when it was announced, people were like, oh, my God, like, you know, great choice, which is always great to hear. But also there were plenty of people who were like, huh? (laughs) You know, um, so but I hope that some of the huh factor has been answered by a win like that. You know, that is a movie that can really benefit in America from that kind of attention. And I don't think that that by any means means that the that Drive My Car is going to get a Best Picture nomination. But it, you know, it 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 looks strong for uh, international feature. And um, if nothing else, though, it hopefully just shines a little more light on a movie and a filmmaker who had two great movies out this year than would otherwise have been. And so, yeah, people should go see it. I think it's still playing in art houses around the country right now. And yeah, I, I was I was I thought that win was was really exciting. And, um, you know, similar to the Academy, it's a very rare film, not in English, that, that won Best Picture in our, in our group. Yeah, it really makes you hope that we see some other curveballs in there. You know, I think looking at something like this and being like, well, it doesn't tell you anything about the Oscars is really not the point. And we are as guilty of that as anybody because we're constantly trying to predict the Oscars. But, you know, having a small critics group where, you know, a few passionate people can really sway the vote, that is the power that you have. And it's really exciting to see it used on a scale like that. I think us being about half the size of the HFPA makes us doubly relevant, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Somehow that math works out. Yeah, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I think that's true. Um, anything from the NBR that stuck out to you guys? We talked about Rachel Zegler. We talked about Karen Hines. Um, I love seeing the breakthrough performance for Alana Heim and Cooper Hoffman together. Like that's a uh, that's a nice pairing. Anything else that popped up for you guys? Anjanou Ellis. That's a that's a good win. Yeah. Um, and I think you know puts her firmly in an expected nomination, which is cool. Um, despite you know that movie not doing quite as well as people expected. You know, and people make fun of the NBR sometimes for kind of being like you know, sort of an older, more like traditional conservative voting body, but putting licorice pizza as best picture, like that's, that was unexpected for, for me anyway. Um, and, um, and, and also Paul Thomas Anderson, one director. So if a movie like that is getting support from a group like that, I think that could be an indicator that it, it has more of an appeal than I maybe thought it did. Cause I saw it more as sort of a niche, like film, Twitter, letterboxed kind of hit and nothing else, but it's apparently not. Yeah. I had a really good week. Yeah, it definitely did. And I also think um, a hero getting screenplay is 
also a nice boost mm. for it because I do think that film's going to play outside of its usual foreign language category. And the ensemble win for The Heart of They Fall. That's yeah. that's a great mm-hmm. a great prize. I think we shouldn't count that movie out for a SAG ensemble nomination. You know, it's a great yeah. cast. It was a huge hit on Netflix. You know, it checks a lot of boxes. Um, it's not a conventional awards movie because it's a bloody fun Western. But like, you know, Westerns have, have gone far in the Oscars before. Well, Richard, you mentioned Anjanou Ellis uh, for National Board of Review, which thank you for doing the transition for me, because we have an interview with Anjanou Ellis uh, with David. Um, so, David, do you want to tell us uh, what we're going to hear in your conversation? Sure. For some reasons to be revealed later, I spent a few uh, days with Anjanou in November uh, while she was campaigning for King Richard. And um, I, I met her for this interview at the Black Excellence Brunch uh, hosted by Tina Knowles for King Richard and specifically honoring her. Yeah, we we had a really candid conversation here about her path in this industry. This is the first time she's ever been getting uh, Oscar attention. She's a recent Emmy nominee for Lovecraft Country and When They See Us, but um, she's been, as she puts it, toiling in oblivion for a long time. And, Mm -hmm. And this is a moment that feels a little bittersweet for her, but she's definitely taking it in. Let's listen to that conversation with Anjanou Ellis. I think that the, the the apparatus of Oscar campaigning and, and what this industry can be a lot of times is, you know, the Academy is still mostly white and a lot of the things we talk about with Oscars and you know, the endurance of things like Oscars so white. Um, Emmy so white. Yes, <laughs> remains. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about what an event like this means, celebrating this film, which is coming in and... and really representing actors of color like yourself who are getting major opportunity in this film to be showcased in a way. Yeah, well, you know, this idea of of black excellence, I, I, I just, I, I like the idea of it. I know that's going to sound simplistic, but, you know, we have sort of had to, because we've been um, marginalized from these, you know, systems of, you know, what is supposed to be, Excellent. Mm-hmm. We've sort of had to be our, our own auditors of excellence, mm-hmm. and we have we always have been, you know. But um, because we have been so like brazenly, you know, left out of these awards, you know, I think that what we're trying to do, and I'm sure that what Miss Knowles is trying to do, and so many people are trying to do, is, you know, we have to give ourselves our flowers, you know, mm-hmm. and it's important. Um, it's important that we we say that we are the measure of our own beauty. We are the measure of our own excellence, even when we don't get nominations from the traditional forms of those kinds of awards. So broadly, as, as this film has continued to roll out and you've been making the rounds a little bit, yeah. I've just heard anecdotally about so many people who love this film and love your performance um, across the industry, across... Um, various segments of it. I'm curious what you've heard um, beyond people involved in the film. Have, have have you heard from people about being touched by, by this film and your performance? Because um, I certainly have. <laughs> what you heard? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I am kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, you know, I make it a I make it a, a point of practice to not read reviews. 
um, and to really sort of insulate myself from that. That makes sense, right? So, yeah, and, and so, but you know, stuff seeps through. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear those messages, the good and the bad, you know, <laughs> whether you want to or not, you know. Uh, even at the gas station, they have, like, the news at the freaking, you can't hide yeah. from media in this country. So, you know, I hear things. I hear things. Yeah. I hear things. But I think that, you know, for me, for me, when it comes out on, you know, HBO Max, Mm-hmm. This coming Friday, and my folk folk will see it. Mm-hmm. People I go to church with, yeah. you know, people who uh, who I live with in you know in my town at home, they'll tell me the truth. Yeah. I'll know. I'll know then. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been away from home in Mississippi for a couple of weeks now, right? Doing. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, is it odd to be away? What What is it like? Push, you know, be I guess being a little bit away from the industry most of the time, you know, in your in your day-to-day life. Um, you come here, talk to people like me, <laughs> go to brunches like this, and then, and then you go home, um, especially with a project like this that people are so excited about. What What is that like for you? It's like a, a, the, a bifurcated self. Like, do you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, it, it really is like a, a maybe a little Jekyll and Hyde. You know what I'm saying? I, I just, it, it feels like I'm, I'm out here. I'm acting in a movie with Will Smith and these amazing young women. And I'm talking to you. And, you know, and the rest of my life is nothing like this at all. Like, nothing like this at all. Even, you know, I was working in Chicago for, I've been working in Chicago for most of my, most, and, you know, Chicago is a blue-collar town. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's gorgeous. It's got that lake. But, you know, it kind of doesn't care about this kind of stuff, yeah. you know? And I love that. Hmm. I love that. So it definitely feels like I'm living two selves right now, yeah. you know? I also think about it in the context of, of what you told me last week, um, when you said you felt your, that career turnaround for you happened when you did move back home. Yes, it did. It did because I was living, I was living in New York. I had, I went to New York, went to NYU. So I did that thing. You go to school at NYU, then you stay in the, you know, stay at NYU and you try to act, you try to do that, do those things, do all the things as they say. And I was just flailing there. I had no I had no focus, you know? I was just doing the things that I'm supposed to do because I graduated from acting school. Do you know what I mean? And, but I had no, I had nothing driving me, you know? I had nothing driving me. And then I, I had to go home because I had a family member who was ill and they couldn't live alone anymore. So I went back to, moved back to Mississippi and something changed, like something changed. And I just went into overdrive. I went into overdrive professionally. I went into overdrive politically. Uh, and I went into overdrive personally because I had to keep this person alive. And so everything around me became, you know, super magnified and super intensified, you know, like it was really survival on every hand. like. If if I didn't work, this person who I was taking care of, they wouldn't they wouldn't live. And then I was living in Mississippi, and Mississippi is a is, you know, a place that doesn't apologize for the Confederacy. 
um, or hide it in any sort of way. And I, that was unconscionable to me and unbearable to me. So that became a part of my fight. So I was fighting for my family member. I was fighting against Confederates. And then I was, I, I really started fighting for my, for my professional life. And that meant what that meant, how that, you know, uh, how that, uh, expressed itself was that I stopped accepting no. You know, I just would audition and I would audition and I would audition and I would audition and they'd be like, yeah, we don't know. And then I would audition again and I would send another tape and another tape. And it, it I think I know that that happened when I went moved back home and my life really came into focus when I went back to Mississippi. Yeah. And so now you mentioned this bifurcated self and, yeah. and I, I, I imagine that there is some part of that that is helpful in a way that you can have that part of you that is home and, and, and allowing you to move forward in all these areas of your life, as you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, I'm telling you, I, I appreciate all of this. This is all so neat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like I just, I'm getting my hair done. I get my makeup done. I'm in the new house and yeah. I'm talking to you. I cannot say that enough, you know? Um, and I just think it's like, it's very, very cool, you know, but I'm telling you, when this is over, I'm getting right back on that road yeah. and I'm going back to my life, you know, that it's the part of me that it keeps me, it keeps me sane. It keeps me alive. It, it really is because there's so much about, I love the acting part. I love the creative part of this. Yeah. Chopping it up with Will Smith on screen or chopping it up with whoever. I love that part. But there's so much that's associated with this kind of job that can destroy you because it is... There's no no measure of... There's no really apparatus of protection. Yeah. Right? Like, it is just you. (laughs) Your your face is a failure. Your clothes are a failure. Like, it is just you. It's not like, you know, oh, you didn't play that piano well. Right. Oh, what you know what I mean? It's just you. And you're constantly being judged and, you know, that kind of, that part of it, it's so destroying. And I, 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 I have to protect myself from that. Well, as you're still here for now, um, one aspect that you've uh, gotten to do a lot is reunite with your cast, and uh, I got to go to one Q&A last week. Um, What has it been like reuniting with everybody and also, you know, hearing them talk about the film maybe in a way you didn't get to talk about while you were making it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you you don't know, you're in the midst of it, and you're not really aware of what someone else's experience of the thing is while you're doing it. Yeah. You're just doing it. So to hear Will say these things, you you, you heard yeah. him, right? You know, and he was talking about like how his his character study and how he read read a book to prepare. The serial killer book. Yeah, it's a serial killer <laughs> book. And I'm like, yo, I gotta get that book, you know? And I was like, I didn't I didn't talk to him about any of that, you know? It's a, it was such a treat yeah. to um to hear him talk about his process. Like I'm sitting here for free <laughs> listening to Will Smith talk about his process yeah. for free, you know? Um so I I get such a kick out of that. And then you know um these young women, Sanaya Sidney and Demi Singleton, who play Venus and Serena so masterfully. Yeah, Oh, my God. I'm telling you, I know they think that I'm just blowing smoke up their asses. 
But it was just watching these young women craft their performance every day was just, I learned so much from them. And it, it looks like they're just having fun with Will Smith on screen. And it's so much more, it's not just that. Everybody cannot do what they do to be so convincing in those roles as they are. Um, I love watching you and Will talk, uh, particularly about the kitchen scene. And, and just, what do, you, what do you get from an actor like that? How does that... What does that bring to your performance? What does that do for you as an actor? Yeah, you know, we didn't talk about that scene. We didn't talk. We didn't talk about that scene. We didn't rehearse that scene at, at all. There were some of the scenes we were able to kind of talk about and work through, but that one was one that we did not at all. Um, so we just sort of showed up, and I think we just really, really were working on making sure that the words were right. Yeah. that I sounded and I was talking to Isha Price, Miss um, Orsine's uh, daughter, um, Venus and Serena's sister, uh, up until, you know, 30 minutes before we shot it and was just asking her, you know, tell me what Miss Orsine would say. Tell me how she felt. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was so generous. And, and I, also I feel... I feel she feels the way that I do, and I'm sure, of course, even more so, that her mother has not had a chance to have her say, that she has sort of been literally and figuratively been on the sidelines of this great American sports story, and no one really knew how, how central she was to it. Yeah. You know? And so I felt that scene was my opportunity to tell the world who Miss Orsine's Orsine Price was. Yeah. Like that's how important it was to me. And I think Isha felt the same way. And then when I'm in there with Will, you know, he has his position, right. you know, from, you know, Miss Mr. Mr. Richard Mr. Richard's position. And I think, and he said this and I think this is fair, that at that point we had we had been Orsine and Richard for so long that we were able to just breathe and just live those words and mean them. Mm. It's it's an interesting scene, too, because there's a lot about Richard and children from, you know, his life before or, yes. or scene and and um, mistakes he's made that we made, that me, the audience, haven't been made aware of um, that, that kind of flow into the story through, by, through what your character is telling him, um, which, again... I'm just fascinated a lot in this movie by what goes unsaid with your character and how there's there are all these there are some blanks you have to fill in um, because yeah. you you don't have as much uh, information uh, about her and and what sh- her side of the story. So, what was it like, say in that scene, for example, bringing these things into the you know this is big information for the audience that you're providing when you mm-hmm. when you say these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also revealing a really core part of your character as well. Yeah, I, I mean, we that that's the way that the scene was written. It of course has had it, it just evolved. It had so many you know iterations, you know, and there was more about those kids before. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a little bit. That's a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, um, but we you know that didn't that didn't stay. But you know, I had that as my background. <laughs> You knew. You'd read. I knew. I knew about those yeah. other kids, you know. And um, 
Yeah, I, I I think that that's, that says something about what Miss Orsine had decided that she had to make peace with her particular kind of peace because peace doesn't look like the, look the same way for everybody. Yeah, but the particular kind of peace that she had to make in order to live with this man, you know. Yeah, um, she had to pay. She had to live with decisions that he made before before he met her. And how her her resolve to do that, because it could have been when she found that information out, she could have been like, no, I'm out. But she chose to stay for whatever reason. I can't speak for her, but she chose to stay. Well, we also spoke uh, last week about um, what this campaign uh, has felt like for you a little bit in terms of what it means. Um, And I wanted to ask about the other side of it. You said that there's a practical side to a potential Oscar nomination. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that? What that means to you? What... You know, the reality is, you know, I've, I've I'm 52 years old, and um, you know, I've been acting since I was twin acting since I was 25, and I, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of toiling and oblivion. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, that there's a lot of stuff that never saw the never saw the light of day. Um, and I had a lot of heartbreaks, especially in the last, like, maybe five, five years, where I was so close, so close to roles that I really, really wanted to do, and then I would lose out, you know, you know, I'm going to be transparent here, I would lose out to actors, of course, who are fantastic and brilliant, but they have... <laughs> those words, yeah. those two words after their names, and when producers are are making decisions, that's that's a part of that. That's what goes in the mix of what who dis, the decision that they make to cast and making those casting decisions. And it's just when I say the practical side of it, that's the practical side of it. Think you know the last couple years, <laughs> you know, remarkably crazily, I've gotten you know. Two of those words, but beside my name, you know, with the with the Emmys, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, but it makes a difference. It makes a difference. It makes a difference in terms of how people look at you um, in casting. It makes a difference in terms of how much you get paid. <laughs> Said the actor straight to the microphone. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that it, you cannot ignore it. You have to. You you know, it's two sides of it, right? You can't. You you can't. You know, you can't let it rule you because this is these are decisions made by other people. And my job is already done. My job ended in 2020 in December yeah. with this movie. And, of course, you know, doing the promotion for it. But it's out of my hands. Those kinds of things are out of my hands. So you can't let that rule you. However, you know, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anjanu. Thank you. Uh, King Richard is now streaming on HBO Max and now in theaters. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So, Rebecca, let's close out the show and hear your conversation with Kenneth Branagh. Uh, like David and Anjanu Ellis, you have gotten to t- speak to him several times um, throughout <laughs> the season. So uh, <laughs> tell us about this one. Well, this time was nice because I hadn't spoken to him since the film had uh, premiered and, you know, been released in theaters. So we talked a lot more about um, what it was like for him emotionally to release this film that is so personal to him. And it it was really revealing. Um, You know, he said he felt like he couldn't have made this film honestly uh, when his parents were still alive. And and it really helped him to sort of think back on this time in his life that he actually said he never really talked to with his parents. And so we went deep on this one and it was it's always a joy to speak to him. And and this was no exception. I'm so excited to welcome Kenneth Branagh, the writer and director of Belfast, onto the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, You know, since we last spoke Belfast your film inspired by your own upbringing and set in Northern Ireland in the 1960s has come out in the US and I know you've been to um, a number of screenings um, as it premiered at festivals and such what has it felt like to see it finally play in front of an audience amazing particularly to see how immediate the impact seems to be with people who may not even have heard of Northern Ireland or the Troubles or or know much about any of that. But what seems to connect is family, people's recognition of some of the difficult choices in the film that have to be made by the family, and also a kind of empathy or recognition of the moment in the boy's life, our sort of nine-year-old leading character who um, is at a point where innocence is lost and in a way the film is about a moment that registers, we begin to see the last day of his childhood, if you like, and now the beginnings of, uh, you know, the bruising process of um, becoming an adult and dealing with, which the film again seems to resonate with audiences, um, around the issue of, of loss, whether it's the loss of a family or a a home or an identity or whatever and then sometimes it's just it's just simple it's characters they they seem to respond to and i think the most memorable um you know encounter i had was when the credits were playing at the telluride film festival where we screened it for the first time in front of a big audience and a woman came up to me in the middle of the credits and leant over to me and tried to speak and couldn't speak and I noticed that the tears were running down her face and then eventually she just managed to get out I'm a grandmother and then she walked away and that was it was one of she reminded me of my own grandmother who when lost for words like that would would eventually say I'm too full she said oh my mother used to say I'm full up Um, and this woman was too full and I don't think her reaction was anything to do with Belfast the place it was to do with, you know, our own experience of being a grandmother. And that was very, very meaningful to me. Wow. I'm curious, um, you know, you've you've directed plenty of films, but because this one is so closely tied to your your own personal story, did you have more nerves before sort of debuting it to the world? 
I didn't think that I did, uh, but it turned out that I did. Um, so to, to give you the example of that, really, the uh, both Jamie Dornan and I, again at Telluride, were... Um, uh, we both knew that we'd had a very profoundly satisfying experience in making the film. And I felt that, in a sense, that was that was enough for me, that, that just that a chance to tell the story the way I uh, hoped to eventually came up. But we we played on the on whatever it was, the Thursday night. And then and I think it was that very night that that woman came over to me and said, I'm a grandmother. And then we had a screening very early in the next morning. And when we were coming into Telluride, there was a queue or a line for the movie that stretched all the way out of town. It was the longest line I've ever seen for anything. And, and that was already a sign of a certain kind of jungle telegraph that was operating in Telluride. And I looked at Jamie Dornan and he looked at me, we didn't say anything. Then we got into the, we were gonna do a Q&A afterwards. And, um, before we went on, he, I said, are you all right? He said, I'm feeling very emotional. And I said, well, so am I. I said, why are you feeling that? Um, and he said, well, because, you know, I come from a place called Belfast. I don't know if I'll ever make another film that's called Belfast or about this, you know, thing. He had lost his father just three or four months previously. I was still, you know, like everybody is sort of processing that. And then, so we go on for the Q&A. Um, the first question he gets asked about is fathers. So he's gone, he's a wreck. And then, um, you know, the same thing happened to me um, because we came on, everybody stood up. This was already sort of overwhelming, really. And then, um, yes, it, it was it was part of a, a sort of a very emotional journey through the early screenings of this film where one was humbled by how much it spoke to other people who, as I say, often just came up to me to tell me their own stories, to tell me what it had unlocked, to tell me where they, their family intersected with this. And so oh, I, I didn't really quite understand how sort of protective of my own family I was, uh, hoping that it would mean something to other people, because ultimately that's what made me make it. If I hadn't thought that the story could speak you know, a little wider than my own experience, I wouldn't have done it. But I hadn't realized how, how you know, emotionally sort of charged that experience uh, would be. But uh, I thought I was ready. I wasn't. <laughs> mm. Is there a part of the film that, you know, obviously having edited it and everything, you've seen it a million times and pieces, but is there a part of the film that gets to you or pricks your heart the most when you watch it? Well, I think it changes around a bit, you know, so, but a lot a lot of it still does. Um uh, it really does, because I think one of the one of the characteristics of the piece was that we we caught something very um, spontaneous and real in the boy, Jude Hill. Um, we often didn't rehearse. He's a first time actor, but he's a very smart lad and a very imaginative boy. And so, it really feels as though we were also capturing something in Jude's life, which was a first time, which was an exposure to something new. And there's something very touching about that. So I think the genuineness of that vulnerability and that uh, youthfulness is something that always touches me. There's a moment when he lies back in his bed when his father's just said cheerio and, and uh, it's early morning and already, you know, earlier in, in the film, there's a scene where he says, uh, overhearing his parents talking about this decision they might or might not make, you're coming back, aren't you? Um, and when we see him in the, just 
it, it's it's so summed up for me this sort of moment of what the what the kid had lost. So the boy we met at the beginning of the film is no longer there. This other thinking, worrying boy is there. It's only something very subtle in his eye, but it's um, that that often gets me. And then the moment I think when um, when Jamie Dornan has passed uh, says to the mother, "Thank you very much for you know you brought them up." You brought them up, it was you, it wasn't me. And so thank you very much. I think that sort of, uh, that very direct, uh, it's quite an unusual sort of thing in a movie for that. And it's particularly in that kind of sort of unreconstructed, male dominated, but female run uh, um, matriarchal society, which the women aren't credited for, but you know, is the fact, is the, is the, is the concrete that absolutely makes it all work. That almost always gets me for the, for the, the surprise, it almost surprised, Jesus Christ, I know it's coming, but it surprises me. It's something I heard my own father say about my mother so many times um, that um, it, it always gets me. Yeah. Obviously, this is not exactly your childhood story, but it is inspired by a lot of it. And I'm, I'm curious, was there anything you kind of um, wavered about putting into this story that comes from your own upbringing that you weren't quite sure you wanted to include? I think uh, quite a lot of it, actually. I mean, I, I couldn't have made it when my parents were around because I think... Uh, my, thumb, my father would have been furious for me to mention anything about the tax man. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that would have been, uh, he'd have considered that very, very poor form probably. Although, because I know, my, my father was an honest man, but the, the building trade in Belfast was a complex thing. And uh, just, you know, let's say there was a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding that was righted because they paid all this bloody back tax and it cost so, so much in time and energy. Um, I think... You know, inevitably, one one you know just wondered about um, whether it was too raw or too exposed um, in some way. But the truth is that I felt like it was definitely coming from a good place, and that place was really a place of honouring them, honouring my parents, and honouring that time, and honouring that city, and trying to understand with some compassion the ways in which people were doing the best that they could. And the best that they could was sometimes flawed and sometimes, you know, full of errors and mistakes and things. But, you know, I think I, I felt at the beginning of the pandemic when I was writing this that somehow, I don't know, we, we all needed to be a little kinder to ourselves. We all needed to appreciate and value, however imperfect, and every family, I suppose, is bound to be, um, you know, the gifts that we've been given. And my, my, the gift that I was given we were multifarious, really, but there was that period I would call the, you know, of innocence, of a beautiful, not idyllic, but certainly a home of, of real meaning for me before the violence began. And then after the violence began, I was really the beneficiary of, a, of an enormous act of sacrifice on the part of my parents to leave something that defined them, that city, that extended family. And uh, I guess one of the reasons to make the film was also something I didn't really put together till after we finished it, that we had never spoken about it. Never ever spoken about that day that mob came up the street. We never spoke about the nine months that, in which that decision to about whether to leave was was considered and i think it was for two reasons one they had to completely commit to this new life you know they wanted to make the sacrifice work as it were and also the idea that you would parade your so-called suffering is, is a very anti 
Irish thing, you know, as far as we're concerned, everybody in the world has problems and they're all usually worse than the ones we've got. And so it's, you know, particularly from the north of Ireland, there's a kind of um, anti, anti-showiness, you know. The cardinal sin is to get above yourself. Never get above yourself, and that, which means you can't go on about all oh, my suffering, my trauma, the time that the crowd came down my street. Well, I'm not suggesting we tried to do that with this film, but I think there was a, wherever they are, you know, there's, there's, you know, I'm grateful to have the chance to say, well, I think you did, you know, you did in these circumstances, well, we did all do the best we could, and um, and the best we could, we could, we could kind of learn from. Do you think we can talk about this scene now that it's come out um, that's near the end where Ma makes Buddy return the item he has stolen uh, during a riot, essentially? And and I think you mentioned when I spoke to you before that that is actually pretty close to something that happened to you. Yeah, we there was this... Uh, I got caught up in what turned out to be a crowd heading towards a supermarket that was being looted. So the, the, the window, the big plate glass window had been smashed and... I mean, it was a shop known to all of us, to everybody. It was just, a, you know, we knew the people who ran it and, you know, uh, but just the volume of people um, meant that, you know, there was just, it was mayhem. When in, people just grabbed, people grab, grabbing ridiculous things, anything, you know. And in the end, when I was, t- and I was very uneasy about it, but I didn't know what was going on, but I li- literally couldn't not move in the same direction. You couldn't get a, it was a, a, a torrent of people. It was a people jam. Uh, so I was encouraged to grab something, and I, I, I grabbed a massive pack of, uh, uh, you know, household washing powder. I felt somehow that that would be useful at least. I felt that that was more selfless than bringing back a family pack of chocolates or something. But I literally couldn't get in the house when I got there, and I explained to my mother what was going on. I mean, I had to move out of the way because she would have taken my head off with her, with her, uh, the slap she was going to give me. Uh, instead, she didn't. She chased me back down the street, and we and we ended up back in that... Uh, Supermarket, so that I could be forced to return it, and and the idea of explaining "Thou shalt not steal" was 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 um, was made clear to me. But but in in slow mo, almost for the pair of us, when we got there, was this sense of what have we done? What have we done? We're back in the we're back in this uh, not just dangerous, but this life threatening situation. It was a big tipping point for an understanding that things had gone so far that anybody, me as a kid in the human physical traffic of it or my mother in a kind of, you know, passionate reaction to it and against it could just get so caught up that you lose yourself. It was an example that it was possible at that time, the way that situation was developing, for things to become out of control in or it seemed like almost a matter of seconds, but certainly in ways that took away reason. And uh, even the most um, would-be civilized people were in there behaving in uncivilized ways. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing scene. And I, I could not believe it was pulled from your real life. I thought it was just something you put on the page. So. <laughs> no, I mean, what, what happens, how it's resolved, it becomes something that isn't quite as directly what occurred. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, you're now, we've spoken about, I don't wish to be personal but in, and, in, and curious about... Um, about you, but as you're now a mother, um, I just wonder whether just there is there is an innate sense that there are things that you would do now for your child that you wouldn't, you know, that that's whatever that is, whatever that bond is, or whatever that innate protective thing. If you feel that, you know, is is different from mm-hmm. the way you might view such things before you had your child. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think 
I mean, this character is so relatable because of that. You just feel that it's just a natural fire that's inside her and and is just going to exist no matter what. So it really captures that very well. Um, I am curious how this experience will influence your future work. What do you take away from getting to make this film that helps guide you forward? I suppose the freedom that I had to listen to all instincts, we've talked about them in other contexts, you know, the instincts about shooting in black and white uh, in many other contexts that would have been you know, months of lobbying and praying and groveling to have it considered by financiers who would say, you know, it's going to be, you know, your little, you know, you're reducing your audience immediately. Um, but just following one's creative gut instinct about that was, uh, was I think, what I learned. And then the, uh, I suppose, the process of, uh, of writing. I mean, um, although I haven't written that much, I've got plenty of screenplays in, 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 in bottom drawers. I've always, I've, I've had the glory of working with great writers and, and, you know, sitting in rooms with them and talking about how good writing emerges. And I suppose primarily also, which I think is a key to, to writing full stop is I, I'm a voracious reader and always have been um, really from the moment reading actually you know was what when I came to England and it was much more solitary existence and we got much more insular what I found was reading um, mm. I remember buying my buying my first book five five shillings 25 pence taking home and my father being appalled he said what'd you buy that for I said, well, I, want, I wanted to read it. He said, but once you read it, it's done. What are you going to do then? I said, I'll put it on a shelf. He said, we've got libraries for that kind of thing. Um, and so, but I, I, I would, the, the bug was bitten. So I think more, definitely more writing because I suppose the, the, uh, the sense of a, a certain kind of, um, you know, authorship that um, is, is sort of, you know, very particular when, when, you know, it's your words on the page and, you know, uh, so I, I think uh, sort of a freedom to follow one's own instincts as assiduously as possible. Uh, in bigger, larger budgeted movies, it's a harder task. Um, maybe it's not the right task anyway, but you know, you're in a, an, a massively and expansively, uh, let us call it collaborative situation. Um, and sometimes that's a wonderful thing and sometimes it can be the enemy of a story told with clarity, uh, as you know, one is sometimes squeezed into worlds of, of uh, you know, trying to please everybody all the time. It's not possible. Well, thank you so much for giving me a little bit more of your time. And for listeners who haven't checked it out, please try to go to one of those theaters to see Belfast uh, as soon as you can. Thank you again. Thanks very much. That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com and read us writing about all manner of things that we're discussing right now. It's all happening all the time. You can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. You can also text us using subtext. Uh, join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-401-9739. We love hearing from you always. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what we'll all be doing when this award season is over goes to Richard Lawson. We do a Jerome Robbins dance in the plaza. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.